All right. Well, in our time together today, the topic is uh, the production process or, or manufacturing execution, which uh, um, as opposed to some of the things that we have been talking about, uh, most notably the, the purchasing process and the fulfillment process, this is something that perhaps not every organization um, will find themselves being engaged in, although certainly as we think about the uh, genesis, thank you, of ERP products and why companies purchase them and what the great motivation was, certainly a lot of companies that dove into the pool very early on were companies that were manufacturing focused and they use the software for the sake of managing their manufacturing process and that of course is, is still the case today so I think you'll find there to be a lot of very interesting things to talk about in the domain of, of manufacturing. So as we have done with our uh, previous business process discussions, we'll talk about some basic concepts, we'll talk about the organizational levels relevant to the production process and master data relevant to the production process and then we'll go through the different steps in the production process and, and talk about them in, in more detail. Just as a, a basic overview of the production process, and once again, uh, if you remember back to your experiences with ERP-SIM, I think this will serve you well, as, as well as perhaps things that you have done now this semester in the context of your, of your lab work. The basic idea is here, uh, we have a request for production that will be authorized and then raw materials will be issued, uh, the product will be created, and then those finished goods will be received back into the warehouse. Well, let, let's just kind of flesh that out a little bit more based on our recollection. We always, of course, focus on, on triggers, and so you'll notice that the very first step here in the process is a request for production. Um, what, what document would that actually be? What document requests production? Planned order. planned order, yeah. Planned order is what we are looking at here. And uh, in the context of ERP-SIM, how were planned orders created? the MRP process. And so we, in fact, will see that there's a variety of ways that they can be created, but based on your past experience, remember you ran the MRP process, the MRP process created planned orders, which were requests for production. And then when you wanted to actually authorize production and tell the factory to begin work on them, you caused those planned orders to be converted into, into what? Production orders, yeah, production orders. So production orders are what actually authorize production. And so we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. And then of course we have some other things that we need to flesh out beyond things that you experienced in the context of ERP-SIM. Since in ERP-SIM things like the issuing of raw materials and such happened 
automatically for you. But the idea of using an ERP system to uh, manage the production process is certainly something that is very attractive to organizations as this can get very, very complicated. And I trust that even as you reflect back to your experience with the ERP SIM, uh, you realize that a lot of the complexity in keeping your company running effectively, even in that virtual environment, was your ability to manage your plant effectively. And so um, that's even more the case in a real-world situation. Uh, let's, uh, before we dive into a lot of the a lot of the full details here, let's talk about the different types of manufacturing, some of which you have seen before, uh, but some of which really um, you've not experienced in the context of your lab work or, or ERP SIM or other things of that sort. What you have experienced is what is often called discrete manufacturing. And in discrete manufacturing, you can visualize an assembly line where off the end of that assembly line roll a, a stream of individually countable products. Whether we're talking bicycles or boxes of muesli or yo-yos or widgets or whatever have you, discrete manufacturing calls for making individual units of products that we can stand there and count if we are so inclined to do so. And so the idea here is that as we think of production, we tend to think of it in terms of individual or separate unit production. We're going to make a batch of 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli. We're going to make 15 uh, bicycles. And so the idea here is that in discrete manufacturing, we tend to think of things in terms of these individual countable units. Very, very common. Cars, toys, consumer electronics, auto parts. There's a lot of things that fall into the domain of discrete manufacturing. But what we need to realize is there's other kinds of manufacturing as well. In process manufacturing, we don't look necessarily in terms of creating countable units of things. We think more in terms of there being batches of products that are made on an ongoing and continuous basis. For example, instead of imagining an assembly line with countable units coming out the end of the assembly line, imagine a pipeline that continuously has a stream of chemical or stream of petroleum product or stream of chicken noodle soup or whatever have you, throw, you know, coming out that pipeline. And we think in terms of this idea of making continuous batches. Continuous production is used for a lot of different products. Paint, chemicals, really a wide variety of liquid products would fall into this category, but there, there could be other things that we think of in this fashion as well. Uh, food products, 
um, you know, orange juice, if you will, other things like that, um, that we don't think in terms of countable units, but we think more in terms of batches. Now realize with this that ultimately the paint might be put into barrels or cans, which we can count, but the idea is more when you get to the end of the production process, you're not seeing individual units come out. It's just almost like a steady river of things that just continue to flow, and as it flows by, you put it in different kind of packaging and, and so on. And my, my comment a moment ago about soup is, is actually not that uh, far-fetched an example. Where I used to live in South Carolina, I live near a Campbell soup plant. And the particular Campbell soup plant that uh, I live near did chicken processing and it did not smell very pleasant and I don't think I would have wanted to know what went on in that building but all I do know is a lot of chickens went in and a lot of chicken broth came out and it came out in tanker trucks and they would you know the same kind of trucks not not haul oil and then unload the oil and then you know hold chicken broth um, they're food grade tankers but tanker trucks uh, would come out of there with the chicken broth in it and be brought to another facility for making soups or you know other products with it and so the idea here is we think more in terms of just having this continuous stream uh, of manufacturing whether we're talking discrete manufacturing or, or process manufacturing, all of it tends to fall into the category of, of repetitive manufacturing, where the idea is, is you have the same or similar set of products that are produced over time, and you're looking in terms of a specified quantity being produced during a given period of time. The, the term we use for this would be capacity. And so we might say, for example, that this particular configuration of equipment that we have is capable of producing 5,000 gallons of paint every hour or every day. Uh, the time interval here is whatever we choose to apply to uh, the metric that we are quoting, but we always think in terms of output during a given time period. And it gives us a way to benchmark one particular manufacturing configuration against the other. We might have a variety of different equipment. Each of them have different capacities, and so we bring that together in some kind of repetitive manufacturing scenario. The idea behind repetitive manufacturing is pretty simple. We take what it is that we want to make and we break it down into a sequence of steps and then our manufacturing process calls for us to do those steps one after the other uh, to create the individual product. And so we could be making a wide variety of things in a repetitive manufacturing uh, situation. This is different than if we're looking at uh, more custom manufacturing. In custom manufacturing, it might very well be that the process is very different as we move from one product to the other, but generally we think in terms of most manufacturing falling into the category of repetitive manufacturing. And in fact, many companies will so decompose and so uh, specify their process that they have particular facilities that just make one product. 
uh, here in the state of Tennessee. We have both a uh, Nissan manufacturing facility and a Volkswagen facility for manufacturing. And I'm not sure what they currently are doing, but I know historically Nissan used to make their leaf here in the state of Tennessee. Anybody happen to know what Nissan's making now? Is it still the leaf or have they moved on to something else? Is it still the leave? And so that's all they make there. They don't make trucks. They don't make other models of, of Nissan vehicles. They just make the Nissan Leaf in that one facility. And so all of their equipment and all their processes are tuned to manufacturing that one vehicle, which they then distribute all across the United States and, and perhaps to other countries as well. There are a lot of different manufacturing strategies. And you saw, once again, we'll refer back to your ERP SIM experience. You saw this first one there, uh, make to stock. And the idea here is that as an organization, we plan our production. And as we finish production, we put it into inventory. And then we sell to customers out of that inventory. So technically speaking, our production output is not specifically designated for individual customer orders. And so as we are making a batch of bicycles or chicken noodle soup or muesli or electronics or whatever have you, those are going to go into a storage facility and customers will buy them. But it's not like we say, okay, this particular uh, you know, video game console is going to Bob because he ordered that particular item. Make to order though, however, is distinct from that. In make to order, production is driven by individual sales orders. And so we actually make things in response to orders coming in from customers. Can anybody give me an example of a company uh, or a kind of product that is very typically driven by this idea of we only make things when we have an order from a customer and then we particularly make it perhaps to their specification. What would be an example of a product like that? Maybe, but, and I'll go ahead and give you these last two points here. Alienware would probably be an example of assemble to order. And the distinction here in assemble to order is um, we bring into a warehouse all the different components. So we bring in video cards and RAM chips and motherboards and other things like that. And then as we get an order from a customer, we put the appropriate configuration. We, we assemble that configuration to match their to match their demand. So you're right, it's, it's, it's akin to that, but we usually call that assemble to order because the things we are putting together, um, we're not actually making those in response to the customer's order. Um, you know, we're not waiting until we get their order to make their video card or to make their RAM chips. What would be an example of make to order then? What's that? 
Boeing making airplanes. Absolutely. It's not like Boeing has like a huge warehouse somewhere with a whole bunch of aircraft in it and an airline executive can just walk through and say, I want that one. Boeing only makes aircraft and, and other aircraft manufacturers only make those in response to an order that they get from an individual airline. And a good, that's a really great example of that because it also illustrates that they have a base model of let's say a 747, but when they get a particular order from a customer, the customer can specify the color fabric they want on the seats and other elements of the actual construction of the aircraft to make it perhaps slightly different than a 747 purchased by another airline. So yeah, Boeing is a great example of, of make to order. What else? It depends. I, I think that you could make the case for it being either one. Um, you, you could perhaps think of maybe Pals or McDonald's being more assembled to order, whereas a restaurant that does a little bit more cooking might fall more into the category of make to order. The, the to order part is, is definitely the right idea, and so it kind of just becomes a matter of uh, degree of classification there. But yeah, I would think that a restaurant would either fall into the category of make to order or assemble to order, unless we're looking at a restaurant that would be a buffet restaurant and so they have a buffet line set up and they just fill all the bins and they're not making food in response to individual orders from customers it's just about you know keeping the trough filled so to speak that would be more make to that would be probably make to stock yeah with the with the buffet line being the equivalent of the stock what else, though? I'm still looking for make-to-order examples. I don't, yeah, I don't know enough about the process there, so it, it could well be make-to-order. Um, okay, so that's definitely unique to your order. So for sure, it would be either make-to-order or assemble-to-order. Absolutely. I definitely would, would agree with that. The example of make to order that I always like to use would be a bakery that bakes wedding cakes. You know, they wait until they actually get an order in for a particular wedding cake. And the reason why I think that example works well is a same bakery might make wedding cakes and then might also make just cakes in general. And so you could walk in and walk out with a Boston cream pie or a chocolate cake for someone's birthday. But if you want a wedding cake and you want something distinct, you go in and you say, I want, you know, a purple cake with green something or other on it and I want a dragon on the top or whatever and they make it to match your specification. Construction would generally fall into the category of, of make to order as well. Um, you know the buildings that are getting ready to happen here on campus would all fall into to that category as well. The curious thing about that though is uh, more and more construction they're trying to move to this assemble to order 
um, strategy. I don't know if any of you, I'm, I'm sure you were sitting out there intently watching the parking garage being built while it was under construction, but if you happen to see them building the parking garage, you know that actually what happened was they came in with prefabricated concrete pieces already on trucks and they just unloaded them and dropped them into place almost like building something with you know Lego pieces or Tinker Toys or whatever have you and so the distinction here when you say construction would be the difference in like what we would call a stick built home and a modular home where it's, it's kind of built in a factory and then just assembled on site. I think I saw somebody else that had a hand up. Oh, you're going to mention the distinction there. The, the reason why I, I kind of dwell on this for, for a few minutes here is the trend nowadays is for companies, they're really trying to get away from make to stock and move more towards this idea of trying to support make to order. Um, an example of this, and it's been of kind of questionable success, but Nike actually has a line of shoes where you can go to their website, it's called Nike ID, and you can say, I want a sneaker, and, and you can kind of custom specify a variety of things related to that shoe, and it will be made to order for you, uh, particular to your specification, and you could have a Nike sneaker that no one else on the planet has one exactly like that. Well, we see that with, with simple things like Nike shoes and, and some apparel and other things of that sort, but we don't yet see that with things like cars. And the automobile manufacturers really are working very hard to, at some point in the future, support that. So it's very, very likely that in your lifetime you'll be able to sit down with your you know iPad 27 or whatever the version is by that time and launch the we'll stick with Nissan Nissan app and say I want a truck and go through and custom specify everything about that vehicle the kind of interior you want the colors the specifications on the engine and when you're done have that vehicle custom made to your specification they can't do that now but the more automated the manufacturing process becomes and the more computer driven it becomes it, it really becomes possible for that to happen you can do that a little bit with smart cars can you yeah because you can pick out the color and whether you want to strip down model and if you want to like add a tachyometer like a clock and stuff like that because they're so small right it's kind of like putting together a little like little toy car kind of thing almost. Uh, can you, now when you do that, uh, I, some of the companies I've read are actually doing this thing where if you want to, you can like actually go and watch them make your car. Can you do that with the smart cars? I, I, you know, I just think that you can, you can customize it because I've been thinking about getting a new smart car. Yeah, oh, do you have a smart car now or you've been thinking about buying a smart car? I have a smart car now. It's the best car I've ever had. I've never had another car with a smart car. Cool. I mean, I do get stopped at every gas station. Like, are you sure you're going to survive? Is it gas powered or electric? Hey, you can't get uh, it's, it's gas. If you go to a European country, you can get the diesel, which like runs 80 miles to a gallon. So, but you can't get it out of diesel here. Wow. So if it's coming, if it's in, if you can do it with smart cars now, probably five, ten years from now, you'll be able to do it with other vehicles too. And so the idea here is 
manufacturers are trying to move that direction. Now, they want to move that direction. One reason is why it's viewed as being very consumer friendly. You know, you may elect to buy one car over another because of some of the customization you could do. But why else is that something that's attractive to them? Warehousing was mentioned. If they're making just in response to an order, then you, you're, you're looking at not having to warehouse the item. It just goes right out the door. And what was the other thing that was mentioned? So now the dealership kind of becomes a place where you go and they have kiosks and such and they help you plan your vehicle and maybe they have a few demos and such, something you could drive. But apart from that, there's not all of those vehicles out there. So yeah, it changes the cost rather significantly. And so that's a lot what, what's going on here. It might be more expensive to make the cars in that scenario, but then we don't have to have all the storage costs, we don't have to have all these other things, but you've, they've got to really work out the cost. Uh, delivery becomes an issue because they can't, you know, UPS you the car, so they'd have to figure out how that will work because right now they move cars around in, in batches. And so there's a lot of logistical elements to work out. But the trend now is to try and move things that traditionally have been make to stock, move them more into the make to order format. And I think you'll continue to see more and more of that as, as time goes by. Comments or observations or and anything else you've seen that would be an example of make to, to order that any of you have experienced? Uh, beyond the smart cars and the and the examples we've given already. Yeah, and I think Tesla would probably fall into the category of not even assemble to order, but make to order. And I think that that uh, you get that with that kind of high-end automobile. So yeah, Tesla is a great example of that. And so when you all graduate and buy your first Tesla, um, you can kind of think of the things that we talked about here as, as being an example of that. It would, you would expect that those would typically go together. Just in time has to do more with input where make to order has to go with output. But you would expect there to be that relationship there. Because if you're not going to have a bunch of things piled up at the output, you really don't want a bunch of things piled up at input too. All right, so jumping back into the format that we have followed in the past, organizational data that is relevant to production. We don't really have a lot of things to talk about here. Um, as far as organizational data goes, the client is relevant to everything that we have talked about this semester, and so no surprise it shows up here as being relevant to production. Company code shows up as relevant because of why? Financial accounting, and we're going to see there being some financial accounting elements that come into play in production, and so that's no surprise that that's there. We've talked about the plant in several different contexts. In the purchasing process, we thought of the plant in the context of being the receiving plant. Uh, in the fulfillment process, we thought of the plant in the context of being the shipping uh, plant. In the context of production, really there's two different roles that a plant will play. A plant could be a facility where we're actually 
making things. That's obviously going to be key to the production process. Or it, it could be a plant in terms of storage. It's going to be where our raw materials are held until such time as we are ready to make things and where things are sent once we are finished making them uh, while they're being held in stock and as they are on their way hopefully downstream to the customer. Storage location goes hand in hand with plant. So we actually see relatively few organizational entities here associated with production. It's much cleaner than a lot of the other ones. We don't have things like purchasing organizations or sales areas or all of those complex structures. Production tends to be much more straightforward. In the domain of master data, we do see um, five different master data entities that, that we will talk about. The material master is obviously relevant because in the production process we are going to be working with materials and we will be creating materials and so the material master being there shouldn't be a surprise. You have seen bills of materials previously in the context of ERP SIM. This was how you changed the formulation of your muesli. And so you've seen that before. We'll talk about uh, the bill of material uh, in our discussion. And then these last three things probably are, are totally new uh, apart from your reading on this subject. And that's going to be work centers, and product routings and task lists and something called production resource tools or PRTs. And so we'll talk about uh, these things and then we'll jump into the actual discussion of the process itself. So first thing on the agenda is the top item that you see here, material master. There's a lot of things in the material master that we have talked about before that are still relevant here. The basic data, you know, this is where we have uh, the name of the product and things like the size of the product and, and how it is uh, dimensioned out, meaning if it's like each or by gallons or by kilograms or whatever have you, that's all uh, basic data. Purchasing related data uh, would be relevant to us in the context that we might be buying things for the sake of using them in the manufacturing process. And so purchasing data would be relevant here in, in that scenario. Sales related comes into play in, in somewhat the same idea here that we're producing things that will later be used for sale. But clearly these are more kind of incidental views that would be relevant to us. And accounting, we already observed that obviously for the sake of financial accounting, we, we are going to see where we have postings related to the manufacturing process to go with things that, that we have talked about previously. There are two other views, though, that we have not talked about to this point that are a part of the material master that are relevant for us in production. One of them is the work scheduling view. And, and we may come back to this a little bit later, but this is a good place for us to, to talk about this concept. You'll notice that both the work scheduling view and the MRP view say plant specific. 
plant-specific execution data and plant-specific planning data. So work scheduling, for example, might say that this particular plant, uh, it takes them three days to make this item. Let's just say that as an example. And you might recall in some of your lab work where you went in and you specified things like the duration that it took to do certain things. Now, some of that relates to things that we will talk about here later today or at an upcoming class session. But the work scheduling view has to do with the production process and things having to do with uh, scheduling issues. How many days it takes to set this up, how many days it takes to make, cleanup time and other things of that sort. Why is work scheduling and MRP, why is it notable that these are plant specific? Why is that something that, that's important for us? Why does it need to be plant specific? Okay, you're 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 in the right idea, but no, no, I think we were closer a second ago right idea but kind of the wrong application there who wants to take a swing okay what what about order planning maybe maybe we're still, uh, we're still not answering the specific question of why, why plant-specific? Why is work scheduling in MRP plant-specific? Not every plant produces the same items. That's definitely true, which also means the what? Okay, costs are different, that's true, but that would be more up here. What's that? Ah, different plants would in all likelihood have some difference. It's, it's very unusual, although not impossible, but it would be very unusual to see two plants that are exactly the same. So it is very, very common for different plants to have differences and those differences will influence how the manufacturing process is executed so you know here we have plant a and plant a has equipment one two and three that it uses to make our product and here's plant b and they have product or they have machine two seven and nine that they use to make the product. Now, the final product that comes rolling out of the end is our product MTX17, and that's the same regardless 
of which plant we make it in, but the execution data is going to be very, very different because plant A makes this product in batches of 20,000. Plant B makes this in batches of 100,000. And it just has to do with the kind of equipment that they have and other things that are different between those two facilities. So once again, the idea of views becomes very, very important here. If I'm working in plant A and I pull up scheduling information related to product MTX17, I expect to see the things that are relevant given my manufacturing configuration and given other characteristics of my plant. That will be different than if I look at it from a person who works in, in plant B. So the reason why work scheduling in MRP has to be plant specific is because plants may have different configurations. And so we have to account for that. And going back to our example of Nissan, Nissan has a plant here in Tennessee that just makes the leaf, but it's very likely, although I can't state this with 100% certainty, that there's another Nissan factory somewhere on the west coast that also makes the leaf and services primarily the western part of the United States. And it is very, very unlikely that those two factories do everything exactly the same way. Because it might be that one factory was built three years after the other factory was built, and so they have newer equipment. Or just they have things that are more appropriate to you know, the manufacturing facility, the size of the plant, the volume, and other things of that sort. So we have to be able to adapt the data that we store about our material and its manufacturing process based on what goes on in, in individual plants. There are other views on the material master that we might be using based on how we manage our production. Um, for example, we talked about before that we might employ quality management to do inspection. Now, quality management came up previously when we were talking about buying things. And we buy something and we want to check it to make sure it's good before we decide whether or not to keep it. Well, we could have a very similar process as it relates to the manufacturing process, where hopefully during the execution of manufacturing, we have quality controls in place to check things out as they're being made. But then it could well be also that at the end of the process, there's a final inspection process. And so that would all be captured in quality management. Forecasting, pretty straightforward. This is where we're going to store information about forecasting of sales of the product as well as forecasting manufacturing runs. You've done some things with that in some of your lab work and, and we'll follow up with that in more discussions here. Then classification also goes into that category as well in that it helps us with, with planning things. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. You know, yeah, you can go in and, and this is going to be kind of like when something is out of tolerance, who gets alerted and at what point do we stop the manufacturing process because things are so far out of tolerance we don't want to keep going. All of that would be defined in quality management.
Okay. Now, one thing to note here is that SAP does allow us, and this would be true of other ERP packages as well, does allow us to capture data related to production and allows us to plan production and other things of that sort. But it does not allow us to directly interface with the equipment that's doing the production. So going back to what we talked about before, there's no way for an order to go into an SAP system and that be directly translated by SAP into an instruction to tell this robot to do this and this robot to do this to actually make those items. That's where we're going to have to buy a third-party product from another vendor that would enable us to establish those controls. But SAP does not go that deep onto the shop floor to actually control manufacturing automation and, and things of that sort. So that's the material master. Bill of materials. Bill of materials identifies the components needed to make the material. The key thing to note about the bill of materials is that it has nothing to do with the process or the equipment or anything else of that sort. It's just simply a list of the actual items that go into the making of the material and, and their, their quantities. What is notable about the, the data structure here is that all items in SAP ERP, all bills of material are, are single level bills of material. So what we, what we don't have is the idea that you could have a bill of material that says, you know, here's a component and then you drill down on that component and you find what it's made of and that's all the same bill of material. The way this actually works in, in SAP ERP is, you know, here's your finished good and your finished good has a bill of material that might say, okay, you use this raw material and this semi-finished good and this semi-finished good to make that component. Well then, this semi-finished goods would have a bill of material that specifies what goes into it. And this semi-finished goods would have a bill of material. So what's actually being represented here in this picture is, is probably, at minimum, three different bills of material. And it would be stored as that, three different bills of material as opposed to one bill of material that is multi-level. Some ERP packages enable multi-level bills of material. To make this simple, uh, SAP does not do that. They have single level bills of material. Now where you have to be careful here is you could create a bill of material that um, for you computery people um, that is recursive. Uh, or the idea is you could have a bill of material that contains a reference to itself in it. And that's probably going to be a mistake. I think this problem has been solved, but in the context of ERP SIM, historically it was possible for you to say, I want to create a box of blueberry muesli that would be one kilogram. And if you think about the bill of material you were supposed to put in it, like blueberries and oats and wheat and a bag and a box. and it was possible historically for someone to say, okay, you know, we want 0.5 kilogram of oats and 0.2 kilogram of wheat 
and uh, 0.3 kilograms of blueberry muesli, one kilogram box. Um, in which case, you just created a recipe that would put a box of blueberry muesli in your box of blueberry muesli as one of the ingredients. And if you think about it, it's like one of those Escher drawings where you would just like have infinite blueberry boxes just progressively in your, in your box of blueberry muesli. You could create that bill of materials. That's not something, though, that I, I really think you could actually reasonably manufacture. So you have to be careful about scenarios like that, uh, except in maybe there's a rare instance where something like that really would make sense. But um, single level bills of material are the way this is actually, actually represented. Uh, a component can have its own bill of material, which is what we just talked about. So it, it gives us this way of creating this multi-level bill of material-like like structure. What do these bills of materials get used for? Well, first of all, they are used in the MRP process. We referred to the MRP process previously. It's something that you experienced when you played ERP SIM, and we'll dive more into the MRP process a little bit later in our discussion on this topic. Bills of material are used in production for us to know what goes into the individual items so that the materials can be properly staged and the appropriate materials can be used in manufacturing a product. Bills of material are used in procurement because we have to know what to buy in order to have the right components on hand to make the items that we want to engage. And bills of material are very, very key in, in product costing. And, and we'll come back to the important roles that bills of material play in this domain right here because we will observe that a single product could have a variety of bills of material associated with it depending upon decisions that we would make at any given time in our organization. So any questions at this point about the, about the bill of material? Here's a picture of a bill of material from a document perspective. Just like other things we have talked about, it does have um, the header and, and line item section. And so we have a material and we have a, a plant. Uh, notice this is important and we'll come back to it in just a moment here. We have a validity date. That's also something that's very important that we'll talk about in a moment here and a status. So everything in the header applies to the entire document. And then ultimately we get down here to the line items and they're just listing, okay, in this particular item, these are the components and the quantities here. So the, the document itself is fairly straightforward as, as far as what, it, as what it contains. Some of these things though have some significance that, that we wanna spend some time talking about here. So let's talk about the, the header of the bill of material here. A bill of material can be either active or, or inactive in our system. Okay, now I'm gonna ask you a question that um, let's see if we, can, if we can figure this out. Why is 
being able to designate a bill of material as inactive something that is notable or important? Who can work through why and share that with us? Okay, absolutely. So we would designate it as inactive at that point. So, but now I'm back to why is that notable? Why do we actually have to do it that way? And let's think about the scenario that was just mentioned. We now have a, a new bill of material and um, that's what we're actually using right now. That's what's active, okay? So we designate the other one as being inactive as opposed to what? Okay, all right, and this is good. And so you wanna hang on to it which means that you didn't what? We don't delete old bills of material, okay? For, it could be the scenario you mentioned, you know, oh, we, we decided we need to go back to the previous one, but why else would we not delete an old bill of material? Customer support could be a great reason for that. Um, it's my understanding, for example, that if you go to Disney World and if you've ever been on their monorails, um, that their monorails at this point are pretty old to the point that they can't actually get parts for them anymore. When something breaks, they have to fabricate the replacement part because the manufacturer doesn't even make the parts anymore because the monorail is so old. Well, generally speaking, if we manufacture a product, we find ourselves having to support it over a period of time. And so we might have changed the way we manufacture watches five years ago, but we might need to refer back to what the components were in a watch that we made 10 years ago for the sake of you know, fixing an old watch or answering questions about the design or even just having it as a reference for things that we do in the future. So the reason why we, we, the status is so important is we wanna take bills of material that we aren't using anymore and, and flag them in the system as being in that situation. But the reason why this is notable is we don't delete these guys. They do not go away, they just become inactive in, in the way that we would choose to handle it in a typical organization. This is the danger, by the way, and this is something that, that largely has been solved, but there were some interesting flaws in early, in early days of ERP SIM. Um, we started teaching with ERP SIM here at ETSU in 2008, which was about the time it was released to universities. And there were all kinds of fun things that students figured out you could do that you weren't really supposed to be able to do. One of the really fun things that you could do is, is if you think back to ERP SIM, you know how you were told you couldn't change the bill of materials unless you had zero inventory of a product? The old original version of ERP SIM did not check that. 
So you could like change the formulation of a product after you made it. So you could like kind of like magically wave a wand and say those 50,000 boxes of blueberry muesli are now strawberry muesli. And you could just go in and change the bill of material and everything would magically change and your inventory would convert over. Can't do that in the real world can't do that in the context of ERP SIM anymore, but it's why bill of material management is obviously something that's actually really important in, in organizations. Bills of material have a base quantity, which means that it, it's kind of like a recipe, and every recipe has a yield on it. You know, this will make uh, 20 hamburgers. This will make a 9 by 13 inch pan of, of brownies. Every bill of material has um, the material specified is in the context of making a designated base quantity. Now it would be very, very typical for that to be in terms of making one unit. But it may well be that due to the way that certain items are manufactured, you never actually make just one unit. Maybe you always, just due to the way the equipment works, you always make in batches of three. So your base quantity might be to make three units. You could also, and, and we'll probably come back to this thought, you could have different bills of material that are different in terms of the base quantity. For example, you could have a bill of material that was based on making one unit or smaller quantities, and then you could have a different bill of material that was based on making 10,000 units. And I'll give you one example of this in, in baking. Um, in cooking in general, you don't have to worry about this. If you want to make twice as many hamburgers, you just double the ingredients in your recipe. But in baking, you don't always uh, just do the math in that fashion. Uh, this would particularly be true with, with bread items. For example, if you want to make more bread, you might double the flour and double the sugar, but not double the yeast. There are certain things that behave a little bit differently. And so if you ran a commercial bakery, you might have different quantities associated with different batch sizes to reflect the fact that certain ingredient ratios change when you move up to a larger, a larger mix size. Usage. Bills of material can be designated, first of all, this is a bill of material that we are going to use for the sake of actually making the stuff. Then sometimes we have bills of material that are strictly for engineering purposes, which is basically product design and, and determining manufacturing configurations and things like that. And then we have uh, costing. You know, so the idea might be, okay, we currently make this product in batches of 10,000 units. But if we buy this new equipment, um, we could make it in batches of 100,000 units at a time. So let's create a new bill of material based on that new configuration. We can't actually use it in production right now, but let's create an engineering-oriented bill of material to help us in, in planning out and figuring whether this new configuration is something that we would actually be interested in. Similarly for costing, there might be a variation here in that um, 
the quantities might be specified a little bit differently. For example, the production usage might be um, specified in a way that is somewhat vague. And for costing purposes, we need a very specific quantity. And we might even estimate a little bit high to make sure that we don't underestimate. And, and we'll look at an example of what I'm talking about with that here in just a moment. Every bill of material, as we observed a few moments ago, belongs to a plant. And the reason why I dwelt so so long on this topic a few minutes ago was to emphasize the, the thought process behind this is different plants may have different equipment. And beyond that, th there might be other things that come into play. We might have different equipment because these plants are in different countries and there are different environmental laws. You know, I, I hate to say this, it's unfortunate that this happens, but a lot of times companies will build factories in other countries because the environmental laws are less rigorous than here in the United States. So in other countries, we use different materials. We use, and we, I shouldn't say that, the company uses different materials, uses different processes that they could not use in the United States because of regulations. And so the bill of material would be for, okay, in this plant, this is how we make this item as far as the ingredients that go into it. Valid, or each plant, as we observe, can have a different bill of material. And you also have a validity. This is the date range that the, the, the bill of material is valid. So we could have a bill of material that's active, but it was active from uh, January of uh, 2015 through December of 2015, but then starting in January of 2016, we have a new bill of material because we're planning to change our configuration. And the thing that's important to realize here, this actually happens a lot. Um, and a lot of times it happens in a way that's totally transparent to customers. You know, it's very likely, for example, that if you bought uh, a new iPhone, and let's just pick that one, for example, on the day it was released and took it apart and then waited till the product had been out on the market for many, many months and bought another one and took it apart, you might notice some slight differences. Maybe some chips have been swapped out. Maybe they've changed something about the product in a minor way. To the end user, it looks exactly the same. But under the hood, when you actually break it down and look at it from a manufacturing perspective, it's a little bit different. Same thing true what we observed about being made in different plants. Um, you'll sometimes see this with products where if it was made in one location, it's slightly different than when it was made in another location. I, I bought a computer monitor, a new set of computer monitors a few months ago and um, did a lot of research onto the fact that you, I wanted to buy a product with a particular version number because it came out of a plant that had better components than another plant was making it from. And so, you know, you get all of that in the, in the material, bill of materials here. It is possible for a single material to have multiple bills of material. And so we have these for making different quantities. We have these where it could just well be that depending upon what we are making, 
this is the bill of material that would be relevant. So whereas in the context of ERP SIM, you thought in terms of one product equals one bill of material, in reality it's much more complicated than that. In reality, you could have one material that has many, many bills of material in the system, and therefore in our manufacturing process, we have to pick the one that's actually relevant for what it is that, that we are, are going to be doing. Questions or comments about this? All right, that was all the header section of the bill of material. When we get to the line items, this is the individual items that are going to compose the material that's being made. And there are actually different item categories. For example, a stock item. And this is what you typically worked with in the context of ERP SIM. And as an aside, it, you had a column there on the bill of material that just had an L in it. And an L meant it was a stock item. And so this was your oats, your wheat, your blueberries, your strawberries, your bags and such. Um, that, that was an item that had a material master itself. So in our bill of material, some of the items there will be stock items. We might have items that are not stock items. Not stock items have no material master. What do we also call non-stock items? Consumables or what else? What other terms have we used? Non-valuated non materials. So somebody give me an example of a non-valuated material that, that might be listed on a bomb. Tire's probably going to be valuated because I don't know what we're making, but tires strike me as pretty critical. I let, somebody said staples. I like staples. That's a good example. You know, maybe when we make this item, we, we staple some components together. And so we shoot, you know, three staples into it. So we've got to account for that. It's part of what goes into making the item. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a non-stock item. Um, grease. You know, as we're putting the thing together, we shoot some WD-40 or we rub some grease on things and we use that. So it's listed in the bill of material so that the people in the plant know that they need certain grease to use, um, but we don't have a material master for it. Uh, having worked in, I used this example before, a, a commercial bakery a long time ago, it was kind of gross to think about, but there is such a thing as food safe grease. Um, which is what you use when you're greasing food preparation equipment. And I, I can still remember on more than one occasion a salesperson demonstrating their food safe grease by taking a big old spoonful of it and eating it to demonstrate that it was food safe. Um, I don't want to think of all the ramifications of that. Um, and it was not pleasant to watch, but food safe grease is grease that is edible. Well, when we're putting something together, we might need to put some grease between the components, but it's not like we measure it out precisely, and it's not like, you know, we, it's, it's a material that we would have a material master for. So that might fall into the category of a non-stock item. Variable sized item. Okay, so the idea here might be that in making a particular product, we cut um, from a roll of metal. 
Okay, so imagine, if you will, a roll of metal that's kind of like a paper towel roll. And depending upon whether we're making a small, medium, or large one, we go over to that roll with our tin snips and, and we, we cut out as a part of the manufacturing process. And so it could be that, you know, like for a small, we cut a 10 by 10 inch square, and for a medium, we cut a 12 by 12 inch, and for a large, we cut a 14 by 14 inch. And so here, it's, it's a variable sized item. And so the bill of material then would say, okay, if you're making a small one, this is how big you cut it. And if you're making a medium one, this is how big you cut it. That would be a variable sized item. And so we see that. Document items are things that get included with the product, but you know, kind of have a distinction here in that they're typically just paper-based things like diagrams or additional instructions. Uh, sometimes, you know, we drop these in the box with the product or we laminate it onto the product itself, but it's not like the other things that are going into the manufacturing of the product. So what you're actually going to see is on the bill of material, you're going to see the item category listed there and then the material number and the quantity. So it might say, you know, L, M, M, T, X, one, four each or something like that. And so uh, we would just see that on the, on the bill of material that, that we are, are looking at here. Uh, D for document, D, um, uh, DOC17, uh, which is a warranty document, um, one each. You know, it just gets dropped into the box with the item when we're, when we're finished making it. Any questions about this? Bill of material, very, very critical in the manufacturing process because this is, as we observed before, we've got to get this right because it's going to be used to order the raw materials, it's going to be used to guide production, and it's key in the actual design of the product itself. Let's look at one more piece of uh, master data and then we'll, we'll stop for today. The work center. The work center is, is the place where production is actually done. So if we, for example, were to envision a, an assembly line here at the top of my slide, um, we might have work center one, and then we would have work center two, and then we would have work center three. And in my example, uh, this little blue stripe right here, this is an assembly line that just kind of keeps going from left to right and items move from one work center to the other. It might not be assembly line based, but the idea behind the different work centers is this was where particular tasks are done in the production process. So every work center has basic data associated with it. Every work center has a name. You know, work center one might be pre-assembly and work center three might be final assembly check place or whatever, but every work center has a name, even if the name of the work center is just work center 17, and it has a brief description. Now, this is what's kind of unusual here. Work centers actually have people designated as being responsible for them. 
So this might actually be like the supervisor of a given work center, or it could be the plant manager is assigned as the person responsible for all of the work centers. But the idea here is every work center will, will actually have a person uh, listed as being responsible for that. And then every work center has a task list usage which is essentially a listing of what can be done in this work center. So in this particular work center, we put spokes on bicycles, we put spokes on tricycles, and we put spokes on lawnmower wheels. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's what we do in this particular work center. Other work centers might do three or four different kinds of things. But the basic data is going to list the tasks that can be done, which is, is going to allow us to determine which routings can use this work center. Basically, you know, depending upon what we need to have done, our job may need to visit work center one or not. You know, if we don't have tires with spokes, we, we, you know, that work center becomes irrelevant for us. So every work center has basic data related to what they do there, and it has capacity information. Capacity information is a measure of how many units of a material a work center can produce within a given time frame. And this is very, very critical in production planning. Some of you that are business students, and I suppose some of you that are IS students might have taken at some point in the past a uh, production planning course. And you study things like the various obvious observation that if this really were a manufacturing facility where products moved on an assembly line here, it would be very important that whichever one of those is the slowest is what's going to kind of bind the speed that the others can perform at. Otherwise, we kind of wind up in a situation like that old, um, that old I Love Lucy episode where she's like working in the chocolate factory and the assembly line's going way too fast. You know, it, it doesn't matter if work center two can do 50 units per hour. If work, or excuse me, if work center one can do 50 units per hour, that really doesn't matter if work center two can only do 20 units per hour. Because if work center one kicks out 50 units an hour, it's gonna flood work center number two. And work center two is, is the bottleneck in this situation. Investing money to make work center one faster is, doesn't make any sense. But investing money to make Work Center 2 better could pay off not only in improving the performance of Work Center 2, but allowing Work Center 1 to work at, at, at more optimal performance. So capacities are very, very critical here. And capacities are defined for every individual Work Center. And the reason why that's key is in this situation, we're kind of illustrating this linearly, but imagine more of a a kind of a matrix structure where some products might travel like this and other products might travel like this and so as we're planning production you know we have to know the capacity of each of the individual work centers here because they could be combined in different ways and in different orders for different manufacturing. Scheduling has to do with 
issues related to capacity, but also things like um, it takes this long to set up a work center and this long for a tear down after work is, is completed because we might have to stage the materials. And so the item comes to us, we pick it up off of the assembly line, we do some things with it, we put it back on the assembly line. Scheduling is going to capture the time associated with that. There will be a cost center designated for each work center used to capture the expenses associated with the work done here. One of the key elements that this cost center will capture is the labor associated with this. Because one of the things that we will see here is that work centers actually have human resources assigned to them. And so a given work center might have, it might say, you know, there are five people that work in this work center and it might list individual names or might just list job roles. And we have to account for how much those people get paid and the labor associated with the work there is going to have to roll up to a cost center for the sake of, of accounting purposes. A recording cost center links the work center to what we would do in cost accounting. So this is a, an important linkage there and you saw some of this in, in the work that you did in the section of your lab work associated with, with production. Questions about any of the things here associated with with the work center. Here's a, a picture from your textbook that kind of goes with that, the, the different things that we talked about there uh, associated with what goes on in a given work center. Questions, comments, or other uh, things related to the items that we have talked about today? All right, well, this is a good place for us to stop, and so uh, we will do so when we get together on Thursday. We will pick up here, wrap up our discussion of master data related to the production process, and then get started into the process itself.